Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. John the Baptist said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits that befit repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, He who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than is appointed you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Rob no one by violence or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all men questioned in their hearts concerning John, whether perhaps he were the Christ, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the thong of whose sandals I I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This evening we are near the dawn of Christmas. The darkness of Advent, the waiting, the sorrow and loneliness of exile begin to give way to a deep and euphoric joy. The Lord is near. He has come to dwell among his people, no more to bring judgment against them, but to be in their midst as a protecting warrior king. As I've been meditating on the texts for this week, I'm struck by the relationship between the joy in Zephaniah and Philippians and the harshness of John the Baptist's words in our gospel lesson. Words that are so sharp-edged and yet They're summed up by saying John's preaching the good news. And I've noticed an echo in the patterns of my own life that I think serves to explain how we should hear John's message on this Gaudete Sunday, the Sunday of rejoicing. And the connection is this. Presumption and joy cannot coexist. The call to be people who rejoice is a call to be people who recognize we have no grounds to presume. To exist is already to have been given something undeserved. And this gift of being is magnified and crystallized in the incarnation. Christ's nativity lends our existence almost a new dimension, 
one that is shot through with the glory and joy of God. As we consider the writings of the prophets as they funnel into the person of John the Baptist, we cannot help but be reminded of how easy it is for us to tend toward presumption. The people of Israel were rescued out of slavery in Egypt by the mighty act of God. It was a gift given to them based on his own good pleasure, not on anything that they were or did. Not only were they brought out of slavery, they were brought to the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey, goodness, sustenance, joy. They were given the law of God that would set them apart from the other nations and order their lives in a way that would bring harmony and equity, and God himself was their king. And yet, if you follow the storyline of the Old Testament, you know that God's people did not continue in a state of joy, but fell rather into presumption. Eventually longing to be like all the other nations around them, they wanted a human king. They began to lust after idols and demons in exchange for the one true God. And eventually, after century upon century of God sending the prophets to call his people back to himself, the garden of God, Israel, was overrun and trampled. The people were sent away into exile, away from the temple, away from God's kingship in their midst, and they were entombed in darkness and sorrow. Presumption is a strange beast. It's subtle. It's almost imperceptible until all at once it seems joy is gone and bitterness sets in with every little thing. And often this presumptive bitterness is only rooted out by difficulty, by the stripping away of the gifts so that our attention can be returned to the giver. How quickly and how easily we can fall away from joy. And that is why we must hear again and again the message of good news with ears made new by the Spirit that we might hear afresh the eucatastrophe, as Tolkien termed it, of Christ's life among us. Tolkien said a eucatastrophe was a sudden reversal of fortune, one that you don't see coming, but one that is so complete, it almost serves to make all the sorrow and trial of suffering become untrue. This evening, on the Sunday of Rejoicing, we are given a foretaste a sample of the joy that awaits us, not just in Christ's first advent, but in his return when, we will dwell, when he will dwell in the center of his people as king, and God will be all in all. And so tonight I'd like us to briefly consider just two things. What is the reason for our joy? And how do we recapture joy when presumption has set in? The reason for our joy is told to us in Zephaniah, and it's echoed in St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. God has come and dwelt among us in Christ. It's difficult to find language that can adequately capture what this means. I think it's reflected in various ways in our existence, however dimly, in the sense of relief and rest in returning home after a long journey, or of having a friend or spouse truly see you. Truly name your pain and fear and hope. To have Christ in our midst is to have true rest. 
To have Christ in our midst is to have protection. To have Christ in our midst is to be seen fully, truly, and to be loved in the light of that knowledge. The problem is that we've created so many distractions and coping mechanisms to deal with the loneliness and lovelessness that we feel that at times it's hard for us to hear even the own deep desires that are hidden within us, longing for this constant transcendent love of the Father. And yet when we allow ourselves to hear it, we recognize that our joy is a reflection of his joy. As the prophet tells us, he exults over us with loud singing. It's been said, you become like what you worship. Gaudete Sunday, the Sunday of rejoicing, is a good moment for us to reflect. Are we becoming more and more people of joy? Or have we allowed the self-serious adult world to steal away our childlike wonder? I watched my children early this morning crouched in front of the Christmas tree, and they were picking up all the wrapped packages, and they were squishing them and shaking them and maybe even smelling them. The world was filled with possibility, life itself, a gift to be received with joy. If we become like what we worship, then we, of all people, should become the most joyful, playful, awe-filled people because the God we worship is a God of joy. As the Son of God says in the voice of wisdom in Proverbs 8, ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, when he had not yet made earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the firm skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the human race. Romano Guardini, who's a liturgical theologian, in referencing this proverb, says this, and this is a really long quote, but it's impossible to find a cutting-off point. It's too good, so bear with me. He says, The practice of the liturgy means that by the help of grace under the guidance of the church, we grow into living works of art before God, with no other aim or purpose than that of living and existing in his sight. It means fulfilling God's word and becoming as little children, it means foregoing maturity with all its purposefulness and confining oneself to play, as David did when he danced before the ark. It may, of course, happen that those extremely clever people who merely from being grown up have lost all spiritual youth and spontaneity will misunderstand this and jibe at it. David probably had to face the derision of Michael. He goes on, it is in this very aspect of the liturgy that its didactic aim is to be found, that of teaching the soul not to see purposes everywhere, not to be too conscious of the end it wishes to attain, not to be desirous of being over-clever and grown-up, but to understand simplicity in life. 
The soul must learn to abandon, at least in prayer, the restlessness of purposeful activity. It must learn to waste time for the sake of God and to be prepared for the sacred game with sayings and thoughts and gestures without always immediately asking why and wherefore. It must learn not to be continually yearning to do something, to attack something, to accomplish something useful, but to play the divinely ordained game of the liturgy in liberty and beauty and holy joy before God. He goes on. In the end, eternal life will be its fulfillment. Will the people who do not understand the liturgy be pleased to find that the heavenly consummation is an eternal song of praise? Will they not rather associate themselves with those other industrious people who consider that such an eternity will be both boring and unprofitable? In many ways, this is the first step taken in the recapturing of joy when we've been beset by presumption. The purposelessness and playfulness of childlike wonder in God's presence. But this purposelessness and playfulness must spill out into our daily lives as well. As John the Baptist would tell us, we must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Did you notice how much John sees this repentance being expressed in financial generosity? Almost everybody that asked him specifically what they should do in order to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he responded with something about the use of their money. When we start to believe that we exist through our own efforts, we begin to hoard out of fear. We view others as competition, vying for the same limited resources. But when we are confronted with something beyond our control, something all the money or charm or talent in the world can't fix, a sick child, an abusive parent, the grip of addiction, the structural injustices of our world, we can either respond with bitterness and more effort or with faith and repentance. The act of repentance, which can be painful and sorrowful, is nonetheless punctuated with joy because it is a returning to the joyful Father who runs down the road to greet us, smothering us in his hug before we have a chance to choke out our prepared apology, singing his song of welcome over us. Repentance is an act of turning once again into the playfulness of the Son in the presence of his Father. So, of course, this repentance gets expressed, as John suggests, with generosity, because that, too, is the very thing that marks the Father to whom we turn. Our generosity should be financial, yes, but so much more. Giving, money, giving our money is simply a part of giving ourselves. That's what John is getting at. Friends, I have the privilege of learning many of your stories, and I know from my own experience how natural and comforting self-protection can feel and what a habit it can become to close ourselves off from pain and heartbreak, even at the cost of closing ourselves off from love. 
And some of you are living with immense pain. You've been shouting questions seemingly to the ceiling and hearing nothing but your own echo. I know that there are voices competing for attention in your head telling you that you're not good enough, that you're an imposter, a failure, unworthy and unlovable. These lies not only hold us captive, but they've given us Stockholm Syndrome. We've come to think of them as our only way of navigating through the world without further hurt. My prayer for you is that in these next moments of silence, the Spirit would silence those lying voices and that you would hear the faint, still whisper of the Father's song beckoning you home. The pathway home to the Father isn't an easy one. It requires vulnerability, an opening up of ourselves again to the possibility of pain and disappointment. It is a journey that requires us to give ourselves to the body of Christ that we might have our deepest fears and most private dreams transformed into the hope of resurrection life the joy of recovering a home that has been lost to us. And if I could offer just one small suggestion in the playfulness of the liturgy, perhaps this evening you could pass the peace with a hug instead of a handshake, no longer presuming on the beauty of mystical union in Christ's body, but being transformed with joy that we have been called together to this place to gaze upon Christ's beauty in his word, in his sacrament, and in the faces of his people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.